You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Greetings, everyone. I think uh, everyone has joined us now. Thank you so much for joining the conversation today. Uh, I'm Alice Palmer. I'm the Program Director of the Art and Law Program at ILLA, the Institute for International Law and Humanities based at Melbourne Law School. Melbourne Law School is situated on the lands of the Wurundjeri peoples and uh, I and my fellow panellists pay our respects to their elders past and present and of course to their emerging leaders and we also pay our respects to the traditional owners of the lands on which we're all speaking from today and uh, from which you all join us and also welcome any uh, First Nations people who uh, have joined the meeting. Thank you. Uh, today, our event uh, called Three Little Words, looking at art and law, is going to be focused on some of the interdisciplinary issues that uh, come up uh, for legal scholars when they're engaging with the arts. And I'm very, very pleased to be joined by my fellow panellists in this conversation, uh, Professors Ruth Buchanan and Sarah Ramshaw, Ruth uh, from Osgood Hall Law School and Sarah uh, from the University of Victoria Faculty of Law, both in Canada, and uh, Sean Mulcahy, uh, Dr Sean Mulcahy, uh, from La Trobe University here in Australia. I'd uh, like to also thank Sandhya Pahuja, the director of ILA, uh, for inviting us to be part of this uh, conversation, which has actually been stretching over several months now, and also to Annabelle Duncan, who so ably assisted us uh, in pulling all of this together. And so, yes, this, this conversation is very much part of uh, this, this ongoing dialogue that we've been having to celebrate uh, the uh, 15 years of ILLA. And uh, so I very much see the conversation that we're having now as part of that uh, sort of whole history of conversation. So we may sort of refer back to some of the themes that have all been addressed uh, in prior uh event so far. And of course, we'll be looking forward to uh, the, the event that's going to be our culminating events uh, next, next week with the launch of the Rutledge Handbook of uh, International Law and the Humanities. So Sarah, uh, Ruth and myself all made contributions to the handbook. And so today, to some extent, we'll be uh, talking to, to those contributions or at least to the art forms that we used in those contributions. So in the case of Ruth, that's film, uh, Sarah, uh, it's music or specifically improvisation, and for myself, it's visual art. Uh, and then, of course, Sean uh, is going to be speaking to his uh, legal scholarship, uh, engaging in performing arts, theatre uh, and also dance. Uh, we're going to be following a format of looking at uh, sort of these four provocations that we've created for ourselves, which we had on the website and which we put out an invitation. I'm just going to press into the chat now so that hopefully you can all see them there. Uh... Oh, maybe not. <laughs> uh, I'll try that one more time. 
Okay, I might have to pop those up for you in a moment. But in the oh, there we go. <laughs> Thank you very much, James. Um, so uh, we'll be going through those four prompts or provocations, uh, taking it each, each sort of in terms to to address some of those, uh, and then uh, we'll come to the end to sort of hopefully engage some of you in some of these questions. We very much appreciate that you all tackle these sorts of questions in your own work, and we'd love for you to to engage in the conversation with us. Uh, just a reminder that the event is being recorded and that an audio of the event will be put up uh, as an ILA podcast afterwards. So thank you. That takes us, I guess, to the, the sort of substantive part of our proceedings now. And I was going to turn to Ruth first uh, with our first provocation. Ruth, what are you up to uh, when you engage <laughs> with the arts in your legal scholarship? Oh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Alice, for uh, getting us started and that orientation. And of course, thanks uh, to Illa for the um, hosting the event. I'm uh, really happy to be here. Uh, this is a rather daunting question for me um, uh, to start with, uh, for all of us, I think. Um, many, many responses can be imagined. I'm going to try to discuss three, uh, but I think I need to start with some basic ground clearing. So my own approach to the question of law and art comes through the consideration of law and culture more generally. So I see this relationship between law and culture as a mutually constitutive one. Law is both a product of culture and an object of culture, to quote Naomi Metzi. So we need to approach this encounter or interchange of art and law as a two-way street. And I often use uh, Escher's uh, sketch of the hand drawing the hand when I'm trying to illustrate this for students. Um, and of course, legal scholars have been thinking about this uh, for quite some time. It was James Boyd White who evocatively observed in 1985 that the life of the law is a life of art, the art of making meaning in language with others. Now, at the time, he was thinking primarily of literary rather than visual arts, but this point about the meaning-making function of both law and the arts uh, stands, I think. So the three things that I think legal scholars might be up to in their engagements with the arts, and it should be noted, I in no way think that we're limited to these three, uh, I would describe as uh, to engage with affect, to take materiality seriously, and thinking otherwise. So I'll say just a few words about each and then try to draw an example from my own work. So I think uh, many of us uh, are trying to articulate a better understanding of law's effective dimensions. Uh, I do this through what I call what I call effective encounters, but a good deal of critical legal scholarship has taken the effective term. Um, a recent publication of note would be Ilan Wall's book on law and disorder, and Ilan carefully parses in that book that there's a variety of ways to think about affect and its politics and its relation to order and disorder. My own thinking has been uh, informed by William Connolly, Eve Sedgwick, the late great Lauren Berlant. I think that um, often affect shifts or is mobilized or surprised into action in the context of events. And in my own work, I have tended to approach the experience of watching a film in a similar way as uh, an event, an unfolding, which has effective consequences for the viewer. 
And in work I did some years ago with Rebecca Johnson, uh, a, an article we called Strange Encounters, we did a close reading of scenes from a number of films that had particularly resonated with us, including the um, opening scene from Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, which was a film that was released not long after 9-11. And we considered the ways in which a film experience might contribute to a politics of fear that could potentially be mobilized to justify an expanded security state uh, as was depicted in that particular film. So second point on materiality, I think uh, many of us are trying to facilitate our ability to take seriously law's materiality and in particular to grapple with its violence. Um, the influences here are many, but would include Robert Cover, who famously noted that legal interpretation takes place on a field of pain and death. A legal world is built only to the extent that there are commitments that place bodies on the line. And of course, Desmond Manderson's masterful dance macabre, the temporalities of law in the visual arts. And in my own work, I've written with Jeffrey Hewitt on an art installation entitled Treaty Canoe, which we took as an invitation to think more concretely about the encounter of indigenous law and colonial law in the context of the settlement of the Great Lakes region. So um, thirdly, and I know I'm going quickly here, but we have, um, there are many of us and we have lots to say. Um, I wanna talk for a minute about uh, what I would call thinking otherwise. I think here um, critical legal scholars uh, sometimes would engage with arts in, in order to open up a space in which it might be possible to engage in prefigurative thinking or what I call thinking otherwise. I describe it as productive liminality in the chapter that I wrote um, for the handbook. And here I draw primarily or um, uh, frequently on the work of political theorist, Michael Shapiro. And for Shapiro, thinking involves resistance to the dominant modes of representing the world, whether those representational practices function as mere unreflective habit or as intentionally organized systematic observation. And cinema, in his view and mine, uh, is a mode that um, articulates and mobilizes images to provoke thinking outside of a narrative determination. So what I say is that film offers itself up as a particularly rich site for thinking in this way because it doesn't just tell stories, it makes worlds which in their aesthetic composition offer opportunities for us to consider how they are made and how they might have been made otherwise. And I think there are many critical legal scholars interested in leveraging uh, ways in their own work to imagine the world otherwise. And, it, uh, and certainly in my re-engagement with the film Local Hero, there's an element of this at work. When I returned to this film a few years ago, the prescience of many of its themes concerning the impacts of neoliberal globalization on local communities and the modification of forms of life that came along with it really struck me afresh. That it was released in 1983, the same year that Margaret Thatcher was reelected with a landslide in the UK seemed to me kind of a chilling conjuncture. But I also think that in that film, there is a space for imagining what the world might have looked like if the brakes on the freight train of neoliberal globalization had not failed quite so spectacularly. And I think that space is opened up in the film's aesthetic of liminality, which I hope I'll have time to talk about a bit later on. 
Uh, so that's the end of my uh, three thoughts. Um, and now I can turn to Sarah Ramshaw to ask you, what do you think uh, legal scholars are up to when they engage with the arts? Thank you, Ruth. So what do I think legal scholars are up to when they engage with the arts? So my answer to this question is very much linked to my vision of Western common law as fundamentally improvisational in nature, which I write about in the chapter in Shane and Son's Rutledge Handbook. So to explain with no, with two, no two legal actions being exactly the same, judges must improvise on tradition and past precedent every time they're asked to decide a case. Justice thus requires an improvisational approach to dispute resolution. Such an approach invites responsiveness, adaptability, and creativity by judges and lawyers when they apply general rules to specific legal matters. The improvisational nature of justice requires an ongoing negotiation between the singularity of a particular case and the pre-existing rules or laws to which it must adhere or follow. As a social practice that is learned and culturally embedded, improvisation is crucial to any discussion, to my mind, of law and justice. So in light of this, I often think and write about the role of art in my legal scholarship, particularly improvisational artistic practices and even more specifically, musical improvisation. So it is my position that improvising musicians more than other artists or improvisers have over the past several decades, and to quote Yves Seton, developed a uniquely reflexive awareness about the art of live collaboration, which all of us practice in our daily lives, but which most of us experience without much reflexive thought. Thus, while musical improvisation, such as jazz musicians, may not be better improvisers uh, than the rest of us, although it may also be the case that they are, uh, these improvisers, according to Sitan, represent the intellectual vanguard in the effort to understand the ethical and socio-political implications of the improvisational activities that compose day in and day, day out the very fabric of our common social and political life. Thus, I look to musical improvisation in order to theorize how law and the legal system can become more ethical and just by looking to key skills cultivated in improvising by improvising musicians and querying whether these skills can be transposed into the legal realm, both at the practical and the theoretical level. So that brings me to the second provocation, which is what makes an engagement with the arts by legal scholars critical, quote unquote. Um, so when I started thinking about this, the first question, of course, that came to mind was what does it mean to be critical as legal scholars? And I did, you know, a bunch of Googling and research on the internet, and I came across this statement by the editorial collective of, of the Critical Legal Thinking blog, uh, which really resonated with me. 
So on the issue of criticality in relation to legal scholarship and thinking, this collective, which includes, among others, Ilan Wall, that uh, Ruth just mentioned, Gil Lung, Stephen Connolly, Dan Matthews, Tara McQueen, and Angus MacDonald, among others. Um, and they say, critical legal thinking, and I'm quoting here, must be relinked with emancipatory and radical politics. We need to imagine or dream a law or society in which people are no longer despised or degraded, oppressed or dominated, and from that impossible but necessary standpoint to judge the here and now. They say legal critique is the companion and guide of radical change. And this statement really spoke to me because in many ways, I use art, particularly musical improvisation in my legal scholarship for exactly this purpose. So improvisation matters to Western law for in its openness to the other and otherness, it offers the possibility of radical transformation within the existing legal system, enabling us to resist or rise up against injustice and unjust laws. Improvisation and its adaptability, responsiveness, creativity, and attentive listening keeps alive the possibility of justice in contemporary law and society. Thus, a critical engagement with the arts offers the possibility of emancipatory and radical politics and social change. So Alice, what do you think makes an engagement with the arts by legal scholars critical? I hope you're all appreciating our seamless transition through these provocations. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, look, this is this is one of the issues that I really tried to tackle in, in to some extent in my my chapter in the in the handbook. Uh, in uh, that contribution, I look at an artwork by Alexandra Pirich, who's a Romanian uh, artist who. Um, produced what she calls an ongoing action uh, for a sculpture festival in Munster in 2017. It was called Leaking Territories and it was held at the Munster Town Hall, which is the site uh, where the treaties of Westphalia were agreed in 1648. Um, and I really wanted to use that artwork for a number of different reasons, but it was, it was responding to what I took as a provocation from Peter Goodrich in something he wrote several years ago, which was... Uh, what I read to be fairly sort of derogatory of international law as being, you know, no law at all, taking a fairly, um, for him at least, conventional perspective on, on, on law and the fact that, you know, international law as a product of politics is, is, is not something um, to be sort of called law and it's really about an absence of image of law uh, that he was trying to tackle in that piece that I wanted to address uh, with my contribution. So I'm trying to use a lot of the themes and ideas that Alexandra P. Reach develops through her artwork to, if you like, fill that void of image in international law with that piece. But I'm also really intrigued by her um, her own interdisciplinary sort of questions because she's trained as a dancer 
And then she is so very well known for these performance, what what many would call performance pieces. But as I said, she sort of objects to that characterization and prefers to think of her work as an ongoing action. Um, and so I, I was really intrigued, I guess, by her own sort of internal dialogue around interdisciplinary practice and sort of what that meant uh, for me when I was talking about uh, law and art or law, law and the humanities for the purpose of the, the, the handbook. Um, so that uh, that particular contribution was then uh, an extension of some of my research around the use of photographic images in international legal processes, particularly uh, various processes associated with international environmental treaties. And uh, again, in that context, I've been interrogating those, what I understand to be sort of legal images um, using art and visual art in particular to uh, sort of uh, perhaps give meaning or some sort of understanding to those images uh, as they appear in law. And so when I'm sort of thinking about this, this question of, well, what makes an engagement with the arts by legal scholars critical? Of course, I'm troubled in the same way that, that Sarah mentioned and to some extent uh, Ruth also uh, discussed with, with her um, contribution earlier that, that, you know, what, what do we mean by critical in this context? Uh, and I often sort of play around with this idea of, well, what's critical as distinct from perhaps what we might think of as acritical, uh, and then I would distinguish that in, in, in turn from, from what I sort of see as sort of constructive uh, uh, scholarship. So as far as the, the critical con is concerned for me, uh, for my own scholarship, and yeah, I, I, as we all are here, we're speaking from our own scholarship. The area is so vast, that's really all that we can do. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I because I start from a critical premise where I understand law as, as cultural practice sort of situated um, in, that, in that social and, and political context that we've been discussing, I, I already see that cultural, that's rather that critical premise to my work as, as sort of a starting point of the criticality, criticality of what I'm saying. Um, but then I'm also sort of aware that, you know, in the tradition of critical legal scholarship, we've, we could sort of be thinking about big C critical, um, critical legal studies and all of the attendant theories that have, have developed from, from that tradition. And that we might... Uh, perhaps distinguish that from what I sort of think about as small c critical. Um, and I know that uh, Oishik uh, Sirkar in one of our earlier conversations had a very nice phrase that, that I'd probably like to adopt for this purpose too, where he talked about critical legal scholarship as the practice of suspicion uh, towards received wisdom. And I guess if I'm thinking about what the role of legal scholarship that engages the arts is in, in that critical sense, then it would want to be using the arts to facilitate or, 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 or foster that suspicion towards the received um, wisdom of law. And I would distinguish that, as I said, from the sort of what I understand to be a more acritical approach. And this is something that Costas Dezenas has described in probably, I guess, um, pejorative terms, 
as as the the, the sort of approach to law and humanities, or in, in our case, law and arts, which is really sort of seeing um, the engagement with the arts as a bit of a cultural gloss, something that that might be interesting at a, a corporate law cocktail party, for example, um, but which doesn't sort of necessarily engage with the arts with a view to having some sort of critical viewpoint on the law. Rather, it's it's done because it's fun, it's engaging, it's interesting. And while all of those sorts of approaches of, of using arts uh, in legal scholarships, uh, you know, has its merits in various ways, I'm not sure that that, that merit is necessarily around um, the sort of understanding that the law through a critical lens as such. Um, but I would distinguish that from what I think I often do with, with my own writing, which is what I'm calling constructive uh, scholarship that might be um, perhaps over-egging over the pudding. But I think what I'm thinking of there is that quite often um, because I'm engaging in, for example, international legal process and specifically treaty processes, uh, my work does tend to have an applied dimension. It has an instrumental um, sort of um, application to it. Uh, and, and in that sense, there's also sort of a normative element to what I'm saying. And I fully appreciate that in that process that that can sort of be seen, if you like, to be countercritical in some respects. Uh, and, and so I sort of play with all of those different sort of dimensions of, I, I guess, of what, it, what it might mean to, to be critical. Um, but that uh, is very much linked to our third provocation, which is must the arts that legal scholars engage be good? Um, and it's linked because, of course, for, for the purposes of that, that second provocation, we're looking at, well, we're looking at law and, and a critical understanding of law. Um, but for this third question, we're turning to the art itself and sort of trying to understand what it might mean to have a critical understanding of the art that we use or the arts um, and art practices that we use in, in our legal scholarship. Uh, and, of course, just with all of our other questions, we want to put quotes around some of the words that we've used and immediately say we say, well, good, good by what standard, uh, good for what purpose. Um, and I think, you know, for me, this, this idea of, of what constitutes good art must be something that we reference back to aesthetic scholars. Uh, I see uh, aesthetic scholars as the experts in judgments of what constitutes good or bad art. Uh, and so I would be looking to that field of scholarship to, to, first of all, I guess, understand the standard by which I'm assessing the art that I use. But in terms of the purpose, I guess that's uh, for me to, to determine for my own work. Um, and I do rely on the art and specifically the visual art that I use as meeting an aesthetic standard uh, of some description as described by aesthetic scholars. Um, and that's not necessarily to say, well, this is, uh, you know, good or bad art or it's high or low art or, or, or any of those sorts of characterisations that many of us are familiar with. Uh, but it does mean that I want to be able to explain or understand the visual art that I am using um, in aesthetic terms um, with an eye to aesthetic scholarship and, and methods of analysing and understanding uh, art. And the reason why that is important to me is because 
having a critical understanding of the art that I use reflects on the critical nature of my own legal scholarship. Um, and that unless I feel confident that the art that I'm engaging with uh, meets some sort of aesthetic standard, then I find it difficult then to sort of feel comfortable in my own skin as a lawyer um, trying to take a critical view uh, of law when I, when I work alongside uh, the art in my, my own scholarship. But, of course, then that sort of raises a, a new difficulty because I'm so deferential to aesthetic scholarship that I, I appreciate that that can be problematic for critical legal scholars who consider that, you know, it's, it's, it's so important to collapse the, the, the disciplinary boundaries. This is something that I've discussed um, with colleagues here at the law school before. Um, I, I understand that to, to, to be critical, uh, we, need, we need to be dissolving those, those disciplinary boundaries. But at the same time, I'm, I'm very comfortable with that with my own work. I, as I said, I have a critical premise. I'm starting out with understanding that law is situated in that broader context um, of, of culture, of, of society, uh, politics and the rest. Um, but I am simply trying to sort of recognise that there is a, an expertise outside of law uh, that I need to know, that I need to respect uh, when I'm working alongside the arts. So um, that's sort of, as I said, that's how I would sort of frame it for my own purposes, and I know we all uh, have, a, have a different view on this. Uh, Sean, um, I know um, with your own scholarship this is something that's come up for you. Would you perhaps like to, to speak to that third provocation about uh, whether art and art practices that you employ in your scholarship around the performing arts and theatre and dance, uh, whether that has to be good um, for, for your own purposes. Thanks, Alice. Um, in your response, in response to your question, I think the short answer is uh, I don't know, um, and I think that's because that question raises itself more questions um, than it does answers. It raises questions about what we count as good, what we count as the arts, and what even are these strange things that we call legal scholars. Um, so I think in my attempt to answer these questions, I'll probably end up raising myself more questions, but I think that's part of what the arts are seeking to do, that they're offering questions in place of answers. And to do this, I might actually share some art. So I'm going to try and share my screen now. And Alice, if you could holler out to let me know if you can um, see it all right. Okay. Wonderful. Can you see that, Alice? Excellent. So in trying to grapple with this question, I think the first question is, what is good? So in my latest article, uh, Singing the Law, which is in the Journal of Law, Text and Culture, I explore what I term in very inelegant language, verbatim musi-legal theatre. So what I'm looking at is where legal speech has been adapted verbatim from legal transcripts into music scores. And I start by exploring Australian music duo Mashton Kutcher's 2020 smash hit remix Get On The Beers, which features our home premier, uh, Dan Andrews. Now, this was played at a, a Perth music festival, a suburban Melbourne Christmas lights display, and perhaps most surprisingly, had itself its own remix with uh, 
featuring Tiger King protagonist Carol Baskin. So is this uh, good? Well, it was certainly popular. It racked up about 1.5 million streams on Spotify and made it into the iTunes top 20. It finished 12th on radio station Triple J's Hottest 100 annual music listener poll. And it points to a musical form which is parodies of politicians' speech which are increasingly popular. We've got examples like Pauline Pants Down's Backdoor Man, which parodies Senator Pauline Hanson, uh, Jeff Van Der Zandt's TikTok video of Prime Minister Scott Morrison, his press conference Andrew Catherine, and Australian Voices choral rendition of Prime Minister Julia Gillard's uh, famous misogyny speech, Not Now, Not Ever. So what these examples suggest is that remixes of lawmakers' talk is becoming a form of popular music. And whether they were good or not um, is not, or whether they meet a particular aesthetic standard isn't really of so much interest to me. What is more is whether they are useful to the question which I was seeking to explore which is whether there's an inherent musicality to the speech of lawmakers. So in my article, I focus on two case studies, Opera Australia's production of Lindy and Doma Warehouse's production of Committee. Now, the first one, Lindy, was drawn in part from the Northern Territory Supreme Court case trial of Lindy Chamberlain, who claimed a dingo took her daughter whilst the family was camping in Uluru. And the opera itself received a mixed critical response, in part due to its commitment to documentary realism and following the character's speech rhythms rather than cutting across them with its own expressive colouring. And indeed, on listening to a recording of the work in progress, Lindy herself uh, said that it reminded her of a cat with its tail on fire being pulled through a sieve backwards, but she did later come to appreciate it. So, for me, what the critics found bad um, is what I found to be good, at least for the purpose of my analysis, and that was the way in which the opera explored the musicality of verbatim legal speech. So really, for me, whether the art is good matters not to me. But this raises the second questions of what are the arts that I'm looking at. So the arts that I'm interested in range from electronic music to TikTok videos to choral works to dance and to opera. But my common interest, I think, is in the performing arts. And my work is part of a broader term within legal studies towards performance studies. Uh, and though law and performance is still an emerging field of scholarship, the performative turn has been apparent in social studies and the humanities since about midway through the last century, as performance theorists recognise the ubiquity of cultural performances and encourage the analysis of performance in many diverse fields and disciplines, including increasingly law. So with my work, I try to reject as much as possible this parenthetical divide between performance and law, or what might we might be talking about here between arts and law. And I try to give space for the two disciplines, legal and performance studies, to speak to each other and in so doing, offer new insights into legal performance. Legal performance is a term that I borrow from Julie Peters and Nicole Rogers to describe the idea of court proceedings and other legal acts as themselves a performance. As Peters describes it, configuring performance Law as configuring law as performance is an alternative way of studying the law, which is more attentive to the material, effective, and aesthetic text, 
stages of legal process. Um, so in a chapter in the edited collection, Art, Law and Power, I explore the performance of sexuality in refugee claims in an Australian tribunal. And in one of the cases that I look at, a Bangladeshi couple claiming asylum on the basis of their sexuality handed a compact disc containing photographs of them having sex together to a tribunal member. The matter was appealed to the Federal uh, Magistrates Court, as it was then, and the court asserted that the tribunal's failure to consider the evidence of what was on their disc amounted to a jurisdictional error. The matter was remitted back to the tribunal, which was provided with a memory stick containing the sexually explicit photos of the applicant and their partner. The tribunal held the fact that they engaged in sex doesn't establish that they're gay or in a homosexual relationship. But for my purposes, I was interested in the viewing of a digital performance of sexual intercourse and how the audience's relationship with the performer is mediated through the camera frame, how the screen operates as a barrier between audience and actors that inhibits the potentiality of touch, and how the audience looks or gazes at the performers through their eyes. I was interested in questions about whether the tribunal member responded and how they felt when I watched these images, what was their visceral response? Um, in mid-2018, I submitted a freedom of information request and found that the sexual images still sit on a memory stick in the case file somewhere in the tribunal's archives, operating as memories of a performance that never convinced its audience. For me, the legal in this case is a performance. That the legal is the arts. And that brings me to the third aspect. What are legal scholars? Um, so if I'm to maintain this claim that the legal is a performance, that the legal scholar then becomes a performance scholar, so engagement with other forms of performance hopefully enriches our understandings of legal performance. And if the legal is the arts, then the question also becomes whether the law that legal scholars engage with must be good. And for me, it's not so much whether it's good, but whether it matters, whether what we're engaging with, be it an artistic or a legal performance, is capable of offering some new way of thinking through a particular research question. So that brings me to our fourth provocation. How might thinking through the arts change modes of legal scholarship? So in my other article, Dances with Law, in the journal Law and Humanities, I identify what I call three styles of thinking about law through dance. Got legal dances, legal practice, dances, legal resolution, and dances, legal research. I'll skip quickly through the first two and then come to the third because I think that's a crucial to this question of how we engage, how the arts might change modes of legal scholarship. So, my first style, dances, legal practice, focuses on the somatic vocabulary of the legal practitioner, their gestures, movement, distance, and touching, the way that they hold their body, the way that they gesture and they, the way that they move in legal spaces. The second style, dance's legal resolution, focuses on dance and movement as a mode of conflict resolution. But the third style is the one that I'm most interested in for these purposes, which is dance's legal research. Gillian Calder and Sharon Cowan argue that by using our bodies, we can reflect on our thinking about legal concepts and tools. So dance's legal research conceptualises dance as an embodied practice-based method of researching and understanding law. As Sarah herself argues, arts-based research practices broaden the scope of what constitutes legitimate systems and forms of knowledge in law. 
So dance produces alternative forms of knowledge and understanding of the law, and in particular, law's impact on the human body and how law makes us feel in an embodied sense. And it can allow the researcher as practitioner to feel new possibilities for the law. So I think through dance's legal research via Anna MacDonald and Marie Jacobs' walk, Strike Through with Pen, which is pictured here, and is part of a collaborative project into how legal textual processes, in this case the practice of striking through texts, has a gestural and somatic dimension. As MacDonald and Jacob put it, Dance's legal research does not generate singular propositions in response to a singular question. Instead, it pulls insights that interrogate the relation between law and the body, enrich the object of study, and may engender other artefacts. This could be because dance and other performing arts do not offer the conclusive statements of legal written analysis. They instead offer an abundance of possibilities and it's for the researcher to glean meanings from amongst these possibilities. It invites us to think of what we know, but also what we do not know. So that's it from me. Um, I'll pass over now to Ruth. Ruth, how do you see thinking with the arts as changing modes of legal scholarship? Well, thank you for that, Sean. Um, I'm thinking about it differently, having uh, heard from you just now. Um, but uh, so one of the things I think uh, is really exciting uh, is exactly what you were talking about, this uh, ways in which we learn how to think in embodied and material um, ways. So um, I think in the context of visual materials and uh, in film, it's also uh, an effort to do thinking with the uh, the materials that we're engaging. And uh, again, to return to Des Manderson, uh, uh, he puts it in his Dance Macabre, we must go further than a mere semiotics of images or sculptures, and I add here film, explanation or description is not enough. We must inhabit them, engage with them, think and see the world with them, both in their own time and in ours. So in my specific little um, subfield, I've been really interested recently in the ways in which uh, film scholars have begun to think with film uh, through video editing software. Um, and uh, they're producing uh, what are called video essays or videographic uh, criticism as uh, film scholars. So it's not uh, necessarily that they are claiming to be producing film as such. Um, it's very much rather a process of thinking with, using the very form that you are engaging with as the vehicle for your critique or commentary. So um, this summer, uh, working with a video uh, uh, editor um, who was a law student at Osgood, I tried to do this myself by making a short video essay inspired by the local hero that essay that I already spoke about that's in the handbook. And the video essay, the, the making of the video essay uh, drew on the theme of productive liminality that I articulate in text in the essay, uh, but it of course allowed me the form of the video essay to engage with that theme in a different way. Um, the essay is composed only of shots from the film that were taken on the beach 
uh, at the time of sunset. So we, we reduce the running time of an hour and a half long film to three and a half minutes of these, uh, of these few scenes. So it is an effort to think about productive liminality in a, in a cinematic way. And I'm gonna put the link to the, um, the video essay in the chat. And I'm going to ask Alice, So hopefully you've uh, all had a chance to watch that now um, and uh, noted the credits at the end there. Uh, we, I do have some permission to overrun on this event slightly, so I hope that um, Annabelle and uh, Sandhya are okay with me doing that if the conversation is flowing nicely, which I imagine it will. Ruth, did you want to make any final comments um, on your video essay or should we just move to the, to the audience at this point? Uh, I can say just uh, one sentence. Uh, really, I was interested in uh, when I made this in trying to open a space for thinking about what Local Hero as a film prefigured, as I mentioned earlier, and also importantly, how we might imagine things being otherwise. Great, thank you so much. Uh, and I think uh, everyone will agree that it was very much worthwhile watching that as a provocation to the audience now uh, to engage in either these four questions that we've been discussing or perhaps some of the own, your own questions that you uh, have been tackling in your own scholarship. Uh, if you are happy to raise the virtual hand, that will help me to see you. Uh, if you would prefer to put something in the chat, uh, you're welcome to, to do that too, and I'll try and keep an eye on, on both of those. So, Danish, thank you so much for being so quick. There's always an awkward moment in Zoom while you wait for someone to ask a question, so thank you for saving us that. Uh, please go ahead. Yeah, um, thank you. This was, I just wanted to say that firstly, it was so wonderful the way in which you've conducted the conversation. So there was a sense of momentum and, and it, was, it was wonderful, really. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, and, and Ruth's video essay is actually one kind of response to my thoughts, but I'm just going to try and clarify what my thoughts are. So I was trying to draw a line between the observations that you shared. So there was Sarah's invocation of critique as the thing that seeks or enables transformation. And then Alice, I took your point about critical legal scholarship as a mode, as a practice of suspicion. And, and in relation to those two, then Ruth, your mention of the affective turn with a reference to Eve Sedgwick's work. So if I try and hold those three ideas together, uh, one of the things that Sedgwick tells us is that the practice of suspicion is a thing that disables transformative insight when it comes to critical scholarship, because a suspicious or paranoid practice is only satisfied when it finds evidence of the thing that it set out to find in the object. So if I read suspiciously, I will find my suspicions confirmed. And so, um, if we are thinking counter-critically, uh, which I, I like the way you use that, Alice, we allow ourselves to be surprised by the text. We allow ourselves to generate new kinds of encounters with the text. And they might be traumatic encounters, but they might also generate hope or healing or prefiguration, to use um, Ruth's uh, language. 
Um, but my my sense is that when you try to do that, when you when you want to generate these countercritical insights, you require different kinds of writing practices from the ones that we are usually used to. And I think one of the reasons uh, you might require that is because we're trying to carry the experience of our encounter with the art object to our practice of writing. Um, because you know, usually what's what often happens in a certain kind of description is that you will lose that that special that spe specifics of the encounter, or whatever. So what what was interesting with the movie that you showed us, Ruth, was that it was practicing a different mode of um, description in some ways. But I, I think yeah. So I think if I had to kind of pass that down to a question, it would just be how do you how do we perhaps think of writing differently and evoking our encounters with our objects um, in a way that preserves some of the specificity of that encounter. Thank you so much, Danish. You've also done a wonderful job of pulling together the, our different contributions. So thank you there too. Um, I, Ruth, I might go to you very um, quickly just because that's sort of specifically ab about um, sort of what the process you've been through. But I know both uh, Sarah and Sean have, have thought this through as well with their own work. So perhaps if we, Ruth, and then if um, Sarah or Sean, you have something to add, we can, we can uh, take that question now. Um, well, I also want to thank Danish for uh, for that uh, lovely, um, not so rambling uh, excursus through our conversation. Um, I mean, I think uh, I, I think your question was specifically how do we think about writing differently? Um, and so I'm not sure that I. I mean, my essay wasn't an answer to that necessarily because it's not writing. Um, so I, you know, I was addressing myself more to the question of maybe there are different forms or modes of scholar, scholarship, um, but I think that thinking about writing differently is a really important question um, that I don't have an answer to. So I'm going to let Sarah and Sean take a, a swing at that one. Sarah, do you want to go ahead? If you don't want to take a swing, I'll move straight to Sean. <laughs> I'll, I'll try a quick swing. Um, but when I think about, I mean, yeah, the question is, what is writing? Um, but, but anyways, but when I think about the relationship between art and poetry and, and law, uh, I always return to Elastic Sue's, the idea of trying to, so we're trying to, make changes in a, in a language that, you know, uh, is so constraining. And so she always talks about the shaking of apple trees. So that's what we're doing. And I think art um, gives us that, uh, you know, another perhaps uh, uh, a bit more oomph in terms of our being able to grab that apple tree and shake it rigorously such that something, um, you know, akin to newness, or at least, you know, a hint to newness uh, can come about so I don't know if I've answered answered the question but yeah I just shaking apple trees that's my my answer thank you I'm going to to go to you Sean but just uh in the meantime if anyone has additional questions you'd like to put your hand up or put something in the chat please do Sean what what are your thoughts on this question about writing yeah I think one of the challenges with writing 
about art is that we're trying to distill something into words that doesn't necessarily speak in that particular register. So we're trying to make an artwork an argument or fit an artwork into an argument that we're seeking to make. Um, and what I've gradually started to see is that sometimes writing doesn't work. So when I was interested in questions about how we experience a digital encounter with somebody testifying, I could have looked to the existing research that predominantly focuses on the visual dimensions of it and what the testifier's experience is, but I was really interested in questions of the embodied experience of the audience, and I couldn't do that through writing. So I created a piece of performance art, performance-based uh, research that I wrote about, yes, but in itself is also a research output. Um, and it's a research output that offers much more questions than it does what I would be able to put into writing, which is some concrete answers. And I think part of the struggle is that there isn't much of an acceptance within law schools of non-traditional research outputs. We don't we have one of the lowest rates of any discipline as opposed to where I formerly came from, which is in theatre and performance, which appreciates the performance as itself um, uh, a research output, not just something that is utilised to be turned into words. Um, so I think perhaps in, in response to your question of how do we write differently, perhaps the answer is to simply stop writing and start doing. Thank you, Sean. That's uh, really raised some fascinating questions. I do have something to say on that, but I, I will, uh, I know Ruth wanted to, to jump back in and that um, James has volunteered <laughs> to volunteer a question. I'm not sure what it is. So I'll take that. I'll take your uh, offer, James, after Ruth. And then if there's time, I might come back on that question too. So Ruth. Ah, oh, thanks. Well, this is this is quick. I mean, uh, Denise, you, uh, you your question did suggest to me that we there was one. There's another person who might have joined us on this panel, um, and that would be my my colleague at Osgood, Kate Sutherland, who's a poet and um, obviously a legal scholar, and she does a lot of work uh, with legal texts in. Um, in erasure poetry and other forms, both in her classroom and in her um, and in her poetry. Um, and I think the thing about poetry in particular that's interesting and informative, instructive for us as scholars is there's a formality to it, right? There's, uh, there's a kind of, you can set yourself rules for how you're going to do it. And maybe there's something about the formality of it that can also translate over into our scholarly practice. And I could add that there's often a formality to the exercise of doing a video essay as there was with the one that I did, which, you know, we sort of had parameters and we only used a certain clips that fulfilled those parameters. So form. Thank you, Ruth. Um, so I note that we're at time, uh, but with your indulgence, I'll go for another five minutes if that's okay with everyone. Uh, and. Uh, James, let's hear from, from you, please. Hi, everyone. Thanks. I um, really enjoyed the discussion. I, I guess I'm wondering, is there a consensus amongst the panel that, um, that art is 
the, the point that Sean made most explicitly that art is, you know, for asking questions and the art is open and the art is ineffable and so on, because I sort of, I just sort of, I sometimes worry about that framing because it concedes, it sort of, it proposes like art as the kind of antidote, well, the analog and an, the, 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 the counterpoint and antidote to law. And, and I think that one, that's kind of one of law's greatest tricks, right? To, um, to convince us that it isn't itself also ineffable and provisional and open. And so that like, I just sort of, I just think so many of the things that we've said about art could, if we were so minded, be said about law. And so, you know, the art might also be for truth. I mean, there are many traditions throughout art history where, where, where absolutely art has been about truth telling, not um, the asking of questions. So, yeah, so is, it, is that a consensus amongst the panel or, um, you know, do we take the art law distinction too seriously when we settle on that or if we settle, or is it something that we do strategically to certain kinds of audiences? Um, yeah, I'm just, I just wondered if, we, if people had any thoughts on that. Thanks, James. Uh, I, I think I can say very quickly there's no consensus in the panel. Um, and, and of course, that's the, the beauty of this, this sort of thinking um, because we all go our different ways and, and come at this from, from different perspectives. But I didn't know, Sean, I don't know if you want to speak to that point first um, or, or if any of the others want to, to pitch in because I think we all kind of move around law and art uh, in different ways, and as you say, James, for different audiences. But um, but certainly, uh, for my own from, from from my own perspective, no, I, I wouldn't necessarily make those sorts of distinctions. I'm quite happy to understand uh, the sort of different, let's say, modes of of law as distinct from arts to work in different ways. Um, but Sean, did you want to to talk specifically to James' comment? We've just yeah. got one minute before we close. Sure. Um, I think uh, I, I, in short, um, I want to challenge as much, much as possible any purported distinction between art and law. Um, for me, I see the law um, and legal process and practice as an artistic process and practice as um as much but in a very differing degree to other artistic forms like dance and theatre and musical theatre, et cetera. So I, I just um, I try and break down those barriers as much as possible. Um, I think also, too, I would hate to, for us to think of art as somehow an antidote to law, that it's this, um, you know, es escapism because it has its own forms of rigidity as well too. But we also, you know, shouldn't as scholars trying to work into in an interdisciplinary fan, manner be trying to pick from one of the discipline to ameliorate the wrongs that we have within our own. And I think really fundamentally, I think, look, you're right, you know, law is just as ineffable as art is, but that's because really I don't think that we can put them into two distinct 
categories and say this is this and this is that, that they're all part of this sort of, you know, um, Schechner talks about it all sitting on a spectrum of performance from theatre all the way through to courtroom trials and that's kind of the best way that I can summarise it. Thank you so much, uh, everyone. Uh, I'm not sure if any of the other panellists want a final word before I wrap up. We good? Excellent. Thank you uh, so much, everyone, for this, um, for, for joining us today. I wish we could have gone on. I feel like we could continue talking for um, at least another hour, if not longer. Uh, but fortunately, as I said, these conversations are on a continuum and we will have more opportunities to go back to some of these issues in at later events uh, and later conversations that we're all having together. This is one of the wonderful things about the about ILA, the Institute for International Law and Humanities at the Melbourne Law School, that not only do we foster these sorts of uh, conversations amongst ourselves internally at Melbourne Law School, but that we can collaborate with other universities and institutions, not only in Australia, but around the world. And I'm really so grateful to my fellow panellists who have joined us from their respective universities in this conversation uh, and to all of you, uh, the participants who've, who've come here today and listened so generously to all that we've had to say. So thank you, everyone. I look forward to continuing the conversation at a later time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to SoundCloud dot com forward slash illa podcast that's double i l a h podcast